Ever since the Second World War, right through the Cold War, through the so-called War on Terror, we've seen outsiders as the threat to liberal democracy. Fascists, Nazis, communists, Islamist terrorists. Now, external threats have not gone away, as Vladimir Putin brutally reminds us, but it's now painfully obvious that the greatest threats to our democracies are not from without, but from within. The assault on the US Capitol on 6th of January 2021 really brought it home. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Events in Washington have taken a violent and tumultuous turn in the past few hours. In Beijing, Xi Jinping would say that Western democracy is fatally flawed. So divided, so angry, so conflicted, it cannot survive. On the other hand, the disciplined leadership, the dictatorship of the Chinese Communist Party would triumph. Can democracies like our own prevail against authoritarian regimes like China and Russia without putting our own house in order? Can we stop the madness of the angertainment industry without stifling free speech? What lessons can Americans learn from Australian democracy? And what warnings can Australians take from America, from Europe and closer to home here in Asia? Australia's political environment is similar to that of other Western democracies, but it is different too. And not just because the centre-right Conservative Party, which I used to lead, is called the Liberal Party. I'm Malcolm Turnbull, and I'm going to use my experience as a former Prime Minister of Australia to try to better understand the threats that our democracies face. The first insight comes from home. Well, this federal election has been dubbed Independence Day as a wave of teal candidates picked off key seats in Liberal heartlands. Zali Stegel is a Winter Olympic medalist, a lawyer and a mother. In 2019, she ran as an independent on a climate action platform in one of the Liberal Party's safest seats whose long-term local MP was Tony Abbott, a former Prime Minister, hard right-winger and conservative, and a climate change denier. It's climate change policy that's doing harm. Climate change itself is probably doing good. Thank you, everyone. I know I'm going to sound croaky, but what a day. <laughs> Three years later, Zali was joined by six other independents who won previously very safe Liberal Party seats on a platform of climate action and integrity in government. One of them was Allegra Spender, who won my old seat of Wentworth. Together, these independents, called teals from the colour of their T-shirts, had changed Australian politics. My old party, the Liberal Party, under Scott Morrison, was seen by many voters to have gone too far to the right on many issues. Zali and Allegra joined me to discuss how the centre broke out. 
Well, Zali, Allegra, welcome. Allegra, you're the member for Wentworth, elected for the first time as an independent. And Zali, you've been elected for the second time as the independent member for Warringah. Tell me, how did you get there? Yeah, well, I guess if I start, when we look back to the 2019 election, it was a tumultuous time. I think there was a really growing frustration in my community about a member who had been there for a long time, who was really still um, putting forward views that were very out of touch, I would say, you know, uh, denying... This is Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott, the ex-Prime Minister, denying climate change, very um, opposed to more progressive aspects like same-sex marriage. Um, And I would say just genuinely coming across as being quite out of touch with the electorate, with a younger voter base. So, and amidst all that was that really growing concern around climate change and the need to get moving. And the events that actually, in relation to 2018 and the you know, Scott Morrison becoming Prime Minister and what happened to you, Malcolm? My defenestration. <laughs> Definitely was a very, it, these were all factors of real dissatisfaction, a real rumble in Warringah of unhappiness. And so for me to step forward as an independent really gave, I think, uh, an outlet for the community to get behind. They were excited. We saw a growth, you know, volunteers, 1,400 volunteers an enthusiasm for democracy that we just haven't seen for a long time. This is a win for moderates with a heart. Now, we've had over 1,400 volunteers, many of you here tonight, waving our flags, moving there. Allegra, you're elected in 2022. Zali, in 2019, had as her opponent, the larger Liberal Party opponent, you know, a polarising, high-profile, hard-right opponent in Tony Abbott who nearly lost the seat in 2016. I mean, one of the ironies of political history is that the reason he didn't lose the seat in 2016 was because I wrote to every constituent in Warringah begging them to vote for him. Can you imagine the... the, Yes, you can imagine (laughs) the reservations I had (laughs) signing that letter, but... Anyway, um, but you, in Wentworth, you had in your opponent, Dave Sharma, someone who wasn't a kind of a polarising figure and yet you, you know, you won and you won very well. Did did you describe your victory the same political process as Zali's just described? I think it was different circumstances, but I think there's a lot, a very similar, I think, experience to Zali. Um, to I think Wentworth, which is you know for those who don't know it is it's where Bondi Beach is. It's you know the it's a it's a wealthy area of the country. It is very socially progressive. It had one of the highest um, uh, votes for um, uh, for um, marriage equality and and for uh, for same sex marriage. It has um, it's but it's very financially and very business focused. So that's the community um, that that I'm representing. And I think a lot of my community looked at what happened in Warringah and said, well, we think, you know, someone like Zali is a better representation of our values, which are socially progressive, but financially and economically fairly conservative and very business focused. We feel those those values are not being represented by the government. And they looked to their local member and said, look, it's not personal with a local member, but if you're not willing to stand for the values of our community, if you're not effective in actually making the government of the day represent the values of our community, then, you know, why are we voting for you? The teal wave did not surprise me. As Zali said, 
In part, it had its origin in the coup that brought my prime ministership to an end in August 2018. The right wing of my party, strongly supported by Rupert Murdoch and his media, plunged our party room into chaos, and out of that emerged a much more conservative prime minister in the form of Mr Morrison. The small L liberalism that I had represented seemed to be lost in a blizzard of Trumpian divisive belligerence. So the question I've been asking is, did the party lose its voters or did those voters lose their party? John Black is one of Australia's leading analysts of political demography. Is the Teal revolution or is it a revolution? Is it a sea change? Is it a flash in the pan? Does it indicate something uh, that is going to endure? Well, it's, uh, I, I guess it's a bit like global warming. It's the sort of thing that happens slowly and gradually and lots of people... And can, it's inexorable. Yeah, yes. Okay. And lots of people find it more comforting to deny it uh, until uh, it becomes demonstrably uh, the case and that's what's happened. So I've been profiling elections, analysing them in terms of the demographics of each seat federally, of course, uh, for 50 years now. And the elections that we've looked at go back to 1966. So I've had a look at a lot of significant demographic realignments and swings uh, and, and, and significant changes uh, over that period of time, and this is one of them. There is no doubt that the political parties have uh, less allegiance to their corporate entity than they used to have, uh, and that's a function, I, I believe, of increasing wealth. So the hierarchy of needs has changed. So uh, the doctors' wives, uh, it's no longer a matter of doctors' wives, the, the, the women are the doctors. Yes, yes. And, and in fact, I, I, I married one. I, I understand this demographic. You are a doctor's husband. I am a doctor's husband. It's a familiar story. A big centre-right party, American Republicans, British Conservatives, Australian Liberals is pulled to the populist right. Many of their traditional voters, naturally centrist, feel they've been abandoned. But what can they do about it? The Teals offered an alternative for voters in the centre. But what is so unique about this Australian election story is that Australia's electoral system enabled the independents to rise. For a hundred years, Australia has had compulsory voting. Electorates, what Americans call congressional districts, are not gerrymandered by politicians. Their boundaries are drawn by an independent electoral commission. And we have preferential voting, what Americans call ranked choice. And I know Allegra speaking particularly about Wentworth, which obviously I know well, uh, people have suggested that your vote came in large part from Labor and Green voters. But none of this would have been possible without having an electoral system that, tell me if you disagree or agree, uh, of having compulsory voting. So basically everyone has to vote. So the turnout is, you know, well into the 90% range and preferential voting. Do you think that that preferential voting is really the key to giving people a choice, an option? Because otherwise they're trapped, aren't mm. they? They've either got to either hold their nose and vote for the Liberal Party that no longer represents them mm. or hold their nose and vote for the Labor Party they've never liked. Mm. And unlike in America, they can't 
stay at home, they've got to vote. So do, do you think our system has given a resilience that enables you to, I don't know, better represent the people in a way, the dynamic way you have? Mm. Look, I think absolutely. And I think that the both preferential voting and as well as compulsory voting are critical. Um, to start with compulsory voting, the point on compulsory voting is since everyone has to vote, you don't have to, it's not the job to get out people out to vote. So you don't have to go to the extremes to mobilise on, you know, on, you know, issues that, you know, like abortion or gun control or, you know, some issues that really galvanise people to come out, which I think pulls Australia back to the centre because most of the countries in the centre, there's a lot of, there are a lot of people who will swing as voters and if everybody has to vote, it pulls our whole country back to the centre. But absolutely the preferential vote allows people to say, well, I can support middle middle people. It's not just this first past the post system. So I think without that, it's much harder. You do have examples internationally when people do it, but I genuinely think the preferential vote gives people that subtlety to say, look, you know, I really prefer this party or this person, but if I can't get them, these are my next, this is the next person I want. I agree, but I think there's a little more to it than that. At the end of the day, people might be looking for different representation, looking for better government, more integrity and accountability. But unless they can see someone that reflects their values on the ballot paper, they're stuck. You can only vote for the names that are there. And if no one there really speaks to your values, then it's a real dilemma. And I think that's where a lot of democracies around the world are at. And I think Australia's political system is shifting because of that traditionally. The communities have moved, their values have moved, but the political parties haven't. And so they are looking for the alternatives that reflect their values. Over the years, the membership of the big political parties in Australia has declined. And in the Liberal Party, like its counterparts in the US and UK, the membership has become older and has not in its composition reflected the diversity of the community. In Australia and the UK, it is the political parties paid up members who choose their party's candidates, as opposed to the primary system in the United States. If the membership becomes out of step with its community, so too will be its candidates. The Teal Independents mobilised thousands of volunteers in each of the electorates they won. It was a genuine grassroots movement and their volunteers appeared younger, more diverse, more representative of the community whose support they were seeking. I've observed over the years a vicious cycle within political parties, particularly on the centre-right. They move to the extreme. Centrist people leave, and the party membership then moves further to the extreme, tacking back to the centre, which is where most of the voters are, is harder than ever if the party membership is dominated by people who live on the political fringe. I'd agree. I think pre-selection is the greatest danger to the Liberal Party and probably the major parties because I think the pre-selection process, you know, in general terms, internationally and locally, it seems to be focused around, you know, the ever-narrowing pool of people who are members of the party and they don't represent the, the broader community. I mean, that was the thing that was so striking about your campaigns. Well, there was a, a representative sample of the electorate wearing your T-shirts campaigning for you and that was the enthusiasm that you gathered. Now, 
I have to say to you and say this about the other Teals, there isn't one of you who, if they were included in a cabinet that I've been a member of, whether as a minister or prime minister, would not materially improve it. My concern is when are you going to be in a cabinet? Because while I do love the House of Representatives and I do love the parliamentary process and I do actually do enjoy enjoy being the local member, as you guys both do, in your respective seats, um, you know, the big decisions are made by governments. I, I guess how do you see the independent phenomenon as it grows evolving into one where we will see you two and, and others in in a government? Well, I don't think I've ever said that I'm not prepared to be a member of a government or a member of a cabinet. I think it's something for my community to determine as well um, and it would be very dependent on the issues. I am absolutely in politics because I want to see a better future for my kids and other generations. Biggest issue we have to deal with is climate change and it has been intractable with the major parties. And so we have to keep pushing that. Yes. <laughs> I know, you're having post-traumatic stress. <laughs> I, was, I was twitching at this point. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but let, let me let me let me sort of cut to the chase here. People will look and say, why are some of the smartest people in that house, in that chamber, not in the government? You know, it's a little bit like if you use a sporting analogy, deference to the Olympian among us. Although we were pretty great sports people. Oh, yeah, I mean, Allegra. I played netball. Alle- you know. Yeah, yes, right. Sort of, you know, <laughs> Sydney University, <laughs> third grade, you know. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. But with deference to the Olympian amongst us, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, someone saying, as they always do because they're always criticising selectors, saying, you know, why are the... You know, why are the best players not on the field this weekend, you know? Do you think you would be able to work together to actually negotiate uh, an outcome, like, a you know, effectively a coalition? <laughs> um, I, I think on the crossbench there's an interesting mix, right? There are definitely some independents on the crossbench that are more staunchly independent only um, and just there for their community. And I'm not saying that to detract around any in any way from our independence because I feel that we are strong, we are stronger and more effective as the sum of our parts and as a collective. And we are we're all the best of the system in that we can support one another, work together, work constructively, collectively with government, but have no responsibility for one another and no ties or no limitations on how we vote. So I think it's the best of all worlds. Um, but there's no doubt that the question of where this goes is important because our system has evolved into this binary choice of politics, the adversarial nature of our parliament. I mean, even the the convention of how we have set up the parliament reinforces this idea of binary choice, one side or the other. It's quite interesting how we've developed into the sense that we have to be in a team, you know, of political parties. Um, I think we need to keep breaking down those conventions. Um, I think it could evolve in a number of different ways. And what I have learned from the time to date is that the, you know, the so-called teals are, you know, very intelligent, committed um, women supporting the best outcome for the country. Mm. I think that's the, there's Mm. a genuine desire there. So I I believe honestly that um, if we got to any of those sorts of situations, 
we would, you know, work together constructively. Not, you know, I don't, I probably not as a you know, typical party, but in a constructive collective or network um, to to be very useful. And I think I, this comes back to, you know, you can see how we work together now. We don't all agree on all things. We don't vote all the same ways, but we do work. We do support each other where we feel that actually aligns with our communities. And I think we do that, you know, we do that more effectively. Um, or you know when the more of us are there. So I do, I think there are options within there. That said, I also think that, um, you know, we, you know, there is a lot of value you can add when you're not a minister. You can set the debate in a way that, you know, the dual, you know, sort of dualism of, you know, Liberal or Labor or the Coalition or Labor doesn't allow you to. So, you know, I'll take something like tax policy where, you know, neither major party want to talk about it, but it's complicated and, you know, the country does need to talk about tax, but everybody wedges each other so badly that it's, it's you know, one of those things that no one wants to touch. And, everyone, you know, I think there's a collective agreement that major parties would like not to talk about tax as much as they possibly can, you know, for the next 20 years. And I think what you can do in as an independent is to say, well, these issues are important and we're going to talk about them. You talk about media diversity. Neither major parties want to really talk a, about, you know, media diversity or, you know, um, parts of the media which are not serving the country. Um, but, again, that's because something... Because they're scared of Murdoch. Yeah, because basically. they're scared of Murdoch. And yeah. Murdoch already hates me. So, well, you know, the Australian from its actions... Well, it's been already... so, it's been, they've done such a good job stopping you getting elected. <laughs> I know. In well, you know, they already, you know, they already have me in their sights. The phenomenon of these teal independents did not just send seven brilliant, progressive, smaller liberal women into parliament... They showed our big centre-right Liberal Party the consequences of swinging off to the populist reactionary right. They demonstrated that the crazy angertainment echo chamber of Murdoch's media empire is not the real world, and it's certainly not where most Australians are at. But this was only possible because our electoral system enabled it. Nonetheless, Murdoch's media remains dominant on the right wing of politics. His media and its right wing counterparts have pulled centre-right politics to the reactionary populist right, not to conservatism. Donald Trump and the mega wing of the Republican Party are hardly conservative. Conservatives respect the rule of law and they defend the institutions that Trump sought to undermine. In my view, Rupert Murdoch has done more damage to American democracy than any other individual alive today. Would we have seen the January 6th assault on the Capitol if there had been no Fox News? It's an interesting question. I I think you probably wouldn't have seen it. That's Republican Adam Kinzinger. He joins me next on the podcast. The podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika. Listener.